0: Good morning, Thank you so much for having us here this morning. Um, my gorgeous family is hiding down the back. My husband Lucas and our son Kaha and our daughter aroha so they 're here with me today and um, I remember when i was um, when I was just a new mum, and Kaha was about oh you must have been about eighteen months old, two years old, something like that and uh, I had a friend um, who was talking to me about uh, different strategies of, you know, the first steps of motherhood. And um, I said to her, he seems to have selective hearing. I didn't know whether that was like a a male thing or a a child. I didn't get it. And I said to her, like sometimes I talk to him and I ask him to do something and he responds. And then other times he just doesn't seem to notice that I've asked. And she said, what you need to do is get verbal assent from him that he's heard you. So you do this by getting him to respond and say, yes, mummy. So, Kaha, it's time to put your shoes on. Yes, mummy. And, and if he doesn't say it, then you say, say, yes, mummy. And he'll go, yes, mummy. Okay, Kaha, it's time for us to get in the car. Say, yes, mummy. Yes, mummy. And this is how it went. And it became this sort of pattern in our home. And I remember one time when he was about two and he was having his afternoon nap and, uh, and he was in his cot and... Um, And then he called out for me from the end of his nap. He'd woken up and he called out and he went, Mummy, and I went down to his bedroom and I I walked in and I said, Hi, darling, how was your sleep? And he said, Good, thank you. And then he goes, Mummy, it's time for us to go to the park. Say, Yes, Kaha. And I thought, that is so delightful and cute, this response from this kid where he's just kind of going, well, that's what you do if you want something to go your way. And as I, um, and as I, I heard this cute little moment, and it was one of those, oh, sort of moments as a mum for me, at the same time, frankly, there was a little prod by the Holy Spirit. Because I felt like he said to me, you do that to me. You do that to me. You say that you're going to live a life that's obedient to me, but sometimes you turn around and you say, oh, Lord, it's time for this to happen in my life. Say yes. Say yes, Heather. You know, And that I would actually sometimes even approach the Lord God with an agenda of my own and expect that somehow he was going to respond to my whim or my demand or my call on him, yeah? And it was this moment in time where I kind of had this gorgeous mother moment but also a profound daughter moment as a child of god and one one of the things that i want to just i i guess open up with today for you you already know in a large part to what we're talking about what we're going to be talking about today and there is a degree to which sometimes people might think to themselves okay i don't need to hear this i'm going to switch off but we're going to be listening to the voice of god today and we're going to be reading his word And I want to challenge you today to be open to what he might be saying to you. So we're going to start by having a look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. And uh, we're going to start from verse 12. Now, just for a little bit of context. Uh, When Israel uh, were brought out of Egypt and sent out into the wilderness, there was a specific task that God had at that time for them before he let them enter the promised land. And that was he wanted to form them into a nation who was like him. He wanted to uh, make them into this people of God. He's going, I have chosen you. I am your God. You will be my people. And then he gave them a law that they were to live by. And the reason that he gave them the law was because he wanted for them to understand that if they started to live on those lines and along those um, rules and regulations, then they would start to represent his character. He wanted for them to be able to say, Yahweh is our God, and this is what he looks like. We're a representation of who he is. And so he, uh, he sends Moses up to Mount Sinai. You know the story. He gets the, uh, the tablets. He comes down. He's got the law of God. And then he starts to read this out. And, and as the people listen, they accept and they want to be like this. And it's fascinating because often what we do is we boil the law down to the Ten Commandments which is actually only a tiny little part of it. And, uh, and the Ten Commandments were there. They were actually causing, well, the, the whole point of the Ten Commandments was, was to cause the people of Israel to become free representations of who God was. So God put things in there that sound to us to be ominous, like you must keep a Sabbath day. I mean, how terrible is that, right? Well, we have to remember, these Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years. They'd never had a day off. So when God comes along and he gives them the Sabbath, he's saying, here's a gift to you. You actually need to rest. It's important for you. So he he gives them this law, and Moses begins to unpack it throughout Deuteronomy. And really the whole point of the law was, you will be representations of my character. This is what God was trying to do. And so he's saying there's nations all over the earth who have different gods, who are cruel, dictatorial, out for themselves, but I am not like that, so I'm going to give you a law so that you can become people who represent me to the world around you. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, and starting from verse 12, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your Own good, I love that. We we so often think about law and rules as being something that's not for our good. Actually, he's saying no; these are for your own good. And then further down from verse seventeen, he says this: He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Now what he's doing here and what Moses is talking about when he's discussing who God is and he's, he's giving them this call and he's saying he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and he cares, he cares about the foreigners who are living among you. He's actually setting themselves, setting this, uh, this nation of Israel up so that by the time that they get to the promised land, they're going to have principles in which to live, by which to live they're going to be representations of who God is. He says he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows, and he cares about the foreigner residing among you. Why? Because you were foreigners once, so therefore you need to be able to be the people who care about those people as well. And he talks about three groups of people that God wants them to care about. Widows, orphans, and foreigners. And it's Critical that we understand the reason why he picks out those three groups. It's because when they get to the promised land, God is going to give them land. And he's going to give them land and they're going to apportion it according to tribe and then to clan and then to family. And they're going to be able to care for themselves. They're going to be able to provide for themselves. They're going to have this rich land that is going to produce crops. And they're going to be able to flourish as a nation and as individual people. But there are three groups of people who will not be able to do that. Widows, orphans and foreigners. Because they're not going to inherit actual land. And so in this place, in this time, while they're out in the midst of of the outback of the wilderness of Sinai, this is the time where God is wanting to say to them, I want to make sure that you care about those groups of people, the ones who can't look after themselves. The ones who, when you get to that land and you get your inheritance and you get your place, you need to ensure... That you have it stuck in your mind that my character is to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, the one who cannot care for themselves. And so he establishes this straight up with them and gives them this mandate to be people who are representatives of his character to a broken and a dying world. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, he says it again when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So he even puts a a promise on it, yeah? Further on, in in, uh, the Old Testament, we see again and again this callback, this hearken back from God's heart. To the people of Israel. He is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling, it says in Psalm 68, verse 5. Psalm, uh, Psalm 10, verse 14. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to, and take it to hand. The victim commits himself to you, and you are a helper of the fatherless. Psalm 82, verse 3. Defend the cause of the, of the weak and the fatherless, and maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs 23.10, do not move the ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. Jeremiah 7, verse 6 to 7, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. In Malachi 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 5, and this one just stuns me, really. The Lord says, so I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. He actually combines together in a big bucket adulterers, sorcerers, perjurers, and people who don't care for the orphan. Stunning. This is the heartbeat of God, that he would have his people, his chosen people, who would be called to represent his character to a broken and a dying world around them. His call for them, for us, is to be those who care for the needy, those who care for those who cannot care for themselves, those who care for the orphan, the fatherless, the widow, and the alien. He says, those who cannot produce for themselves. And so it's from this place that the the heart of what we're doing with Ark has come from. And I don't want to stand here today and give you an infomercial about Ark. I want to talk about the father heart of God because he calls his people to this. He calls us, his people, to care for the broken and the dying in his name, so that the world around us, in the same way that it was for the Israelites, so that the world around us will be able to see who God is because we're a representation of his character. There was a, a, a moment for us when this became sort of front and center. It was a number of years ago, and actually in, in 2007. And I was um, pregnant with Kahar at the time, seven months pregnant. We were at a conference, and we heard um, Stephen Curtis Chapman sing a song, and uh, I wasn't particularly a fan. I, I, if we'd had uh, smartphones at the time, I might have been flicking through Facebook. I, I don't know. If I, the smartphones didn't exist in, 20, in 2007. This is how I know. And, um, and, and so we were sitting there and he got up and he started to sing his song. And it was about the adoption of his daughter from China. And there was something that gripped me in a way that not many things have gripped me before in life. And we had a conversation afterwards about it and um we decided together that this was something that God was wanting to call us into and it was the beginning of a journey that showed us and opened our eyes to the plight of kids in this country who are desperate for people to take them in because of substance abuse because of family violence whatever the situation is kids have to be removed from their family of origin and they're removed by the government but there's so often nowhere for them to go. And so we heard about this and we learned that even now there are 48,000 children in this nation who will not sleep in the bed of their biological parent tonight. 48,000. There's only 23,000 registered carers. And there's 1.6 million Christians. Fascinating fascinating. And so we looked around and we went, okay, lord, who's doing something about this? You know, who's starting to raise the profile of the need for God's people to step in and be the the response now to the fatherless? And we didn't find anyone. We didn't find any Christian organizations across the country who were wanting to step in and see a difference made. And so we reluctantly but obediently put up our hand five years ago, and decided to step into that gap, and that's what we do. There's a a moment in time in Scripture, even though you can see all the way through the Old Testament that God's people got it wrong, and he keeps reminding them, you know, care for the orphan and the widow, care for the orphan and the widow and the alien. He keeps telling them all the way through the Old Testament, reminding them, bringing them back to that place, and it never seems to settle. I mean, they do it, but they don't. And always, I guess, as humans, when we're under our own steam, we always tend to think about number one. That's why God's people have such a profound importance in our society, because he calls us to think about others and not about ourselves. But there was a moment in time in Scripture when I actually can see that the vision that God had in Deuteronomy comes to pass, and it's in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 44, it says this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is the early church straight after Pentecost. This is the early church filled with the Spirit who started to meet together in homes and go and pray and preach in the temple courts. And this is the way that Luke describes them in Acts. He says they sold their possessions and they gave to anyone who had need and they became known for that. So in the 1st in the first century, 1st first and 2nd century uh, AD, the Roman law at the time and under the Roman Empire was um, that if infanticide was legal. Uh, so if you had a child that you couldn't afford or that child happened to be a girl and girls were not so much wanted because... You know, people couldn't afford to have too many children and boys were the ones who would carry on the family line. So if you had a child that was unwanted or a girl or disabled, then um, you could leave that child out on the docks or on the, um, the rubbish dump and just allow nature or wild animals to take their course. It was called exposure. It was commonly practiced back in the Roman Empire. And the early church, as they started to gather together in their homes and and do community together, they got concerned about this, and so they started to respond. And it's all throughout the history books. They would go down to the docks, and they would go down to the, the tip each day, and they would look around for any babies that might have been left behind, and they would take them in, and they would bring them into their homes, and they would raise them as their own. Not because they had more money or were able to do that financially more than anybody else, in fact, a lot of times they were sidelined from society and so they found finances a lot more difficult. But they would bring them in just out of obedience and bring them into their homes and start to adopt and raise these children as their own. What happened was fascinating because these, as these children, predominantly girls, were raised and they would grow up and, and become these wonderful uh, moral women, of course what happens in a society when you predominantly get rid of your little girls is that you have a male-dominant society, right? And then all of a sudden, you have a whole lot of men who are looking for wives. Where are we going to find a wife? Well, I'll tell you where you'll find a wife. You'll find a wife in the walls of the church. And so they started to approach the church, and they would ask them, you know, can we have your girls? She's ready to be married. She's 13 years old. Because the marriage age at that time was 13. 13. In the church, they went collectively, no, no, we don't think that our little girls should be married off at 13. We think 16's a better age. I still think that's too young, by the way, but back in those days, you know. And so um, they, they kept their, their young women until they were 16, and then they would allow them to be married off, and you know what happened? They weren't dying in childbirth. And so what, this fascinating thing happened the society, the culture around them started to notice that the church were raising girls and handing them into marriage differently than how normal culture was. And eventually, over a period of time, without picketing the government and telling them, you need to do this, simply by displaying a different way to live, they had the marriage law changed. During that time, and by the third century, there was... a a movement of caring for the poor that was run by God's people right throughout the Roman Empire. By 300 AD, they had 150,000 sick or poor people cared for by God's people across the Roman Empire every day. And this is what God's people became known for. There was actually even an emperor, a Roman emperor, Julian, who hated the church. He hated Christianity. And he was right into paganism, loved paganism, didn't want for God's people to grow and start to influence the society. But he wrote a letter that we have um, in posterity. He wrote a letter to his pagan high priests complaining about the church and their charity. And this is what he said. These impious Christians not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them in with their agape. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Christians devote themselves to works of charity, and by a display of false compassion, have established and given effect to their errors. That he was angry about it, but he was still talking about it. And so, what we see is this beautiful vision that God had in Deuteronomy to say, You are my people, Israel, and this is how I want you to behave. Why? Because this is what I did for you before when you were in Egypt and we jump forward to the New Testament where a spirit-filled church naturally start to respond and behave the way that God had always intended it's a beautiful picture of the heart of God that his people would say you know what once I was a foreigner once I was an alien and he invited me in but hey, guess what? Once I was an orphan, once I was fatherless, and he adopted me in. In James 1.27, this is Jesus' brother writing, he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I mean, that's pretty plain and simple. This is the religion God accepts, care for the fatherless. Care for the fatherless and don't be polluted by the world around you. There was a um, a pastor in a church in Denver, Colorado, and we had the opportunity to hear him speak just recently. But back in 2007, he decided that he was going to arm up his church to make a difference in the foster situation there. And James one twenty seven inspired him, and he created... Um, a, a project called Project 127 and he rallied churches that helped empty Colorado's foster care system of the more than 800 children who were waiting for homes. The numbers spoke, spoke for themselves. 875 children were waiting in Colorado's foster care system in 2007 and one year later there were no children waiting. Zero. Zero had been placed into homes thanks, from this I- thanks to this idea from Pastor Robert Jellinus of Denver. His message that it is possible for people of faith to step up and to open their lives and their hearts and that a foster care system can be emptied. And then he said no one person can do it. We can take one child. My wife and I dove into the process. Personally we have six children, five adopted, one at a time. And we have room for one more. God will figure the rest out. I know that uh, for a lot of you here today as you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, I don't have room, I don't have space in my life for that. And there might be some sort of a vision in your mind of what it looks like to be a foster carer, that somehow you've got to give up your life, give up your job, stay at home full time and have a child that's going to be there until they're 18 years old. And for some people, that is the case, but actually for the vast majority of people, that's not the case. Foster care involves respite care. Gosh, if we could get a respite care family to take a child for a weekend a month to give a break to the family who are looking after that child, that goes a long way towards sustainability. We need to remember that, that these kids have not only been removed from their biological family but also from their, their extended family. They need grandparents. They need aunts and uncles. They need people who are going to invest in their life and and come alongside them. And actually, if I'm honest with you, the state government have asked us, they have approached ARC and asked us specifically to focus on Gippsland because there is such a desperate need for emergency carers in Gippsland. An emergency carer is someone who takes a child who might have been just removed today and says, yeah, you know, I've got a bed here, and they can sleep here for a couple of nights until you find a long-term placement for them. These kids are traumatised. They've come from a situation of often neglect or abuse. Sometimes they've seen things that you and I would never want to see in a lifetime, and they're in a family situation there that is terrifying to us, but when they're removed by a stranger and then brought to a stranger's house... That is even more terrifying because at least they knew what they were in before and they don't know what they're in now. For a child, that moment, they need a godly face. They need someone who's prepared to go, hey, it's okay. It's all right. You don't have to come right up to me right now. It's all all good. I get it. I understand. I'm here just to display the love of Jesus in front of you, not to coerce you to faith, just to live out my faith in front of you. If ever there was a job for the people of God, that to me is it. But I know for others of you as you're listening to this today, you're thinking to yourself, kids, is not my thing. You know, what about the the poor? What about the needy? What about the homeless people? What about the other people in in our local community who desperately need someone to come alongside them? You know, God is speaking to you today about that too because his heart is for us, his people, to display his character to a broken and a dying world in whatever way we can. Our goal and our job, and now Joe and Pete's as well, is to try and engage God's people with this idea because it's been about 100 years since the church did that. About 100 years ago, they started setting up agencies. And they were were, uh, Christian-based and Christian-focused, but they no longer are. They're secular. And so he's wanting to remind us, actually, this is our responsibility. And I know that one of the questions that people ask, first and foremost, is, but hang on a second. The church cannot be trusted with kids. We've learned this. We've learned this over history, and certainly in this nation, it's a terrible, terrible time to be a Christian and talking about looking after children. I believe that God's heart is for kids, and he never said it was going to be easy. And at some point, we, God's people, need to change that narrative and say, actually, we're going to represent his character properly. We're not going to do the horrid things of the past. We are going to be the ones in the forefront who represent his character properly to the world around us. I'm going to finish up, but I just want to tell you one last story. And I wish it was my illustration, but it's not. It was actually Michael Frost who told this um, story. He said he was invited to a a communion service with some friends of his. And it was like a creative communion service. And he thought, oh, this will be interesting. We'll we'll go in. And it it was set in this chapel. And so he walked in, and they were told they had to take their shoes off, and as they walked into this chapel, uh, there was black plastic. All the pews had been removed, and there was just black plastic from wall to wall right across the floor. And I thought, this is weird. And so he was standing there in his socks, and they're, they're filed in. And in the middle of the room was an enormous six-foot pile of garbage. And he thought, that is weird. That is weird. And they were ushered in, they had to stand all the way around, make a circle around this big pile of garbage and stand there looking at it. And he goes, I need to let you know this wasn't hard rubbish. This was filthy garbage with meat juice. He said, I'm standing there in my socks hoping that the meat juice river that was coming along the black plastic wasn't going to reach my socks. He said, it stank. You couldn't think because you were so focused on how foul that garbage smelt. And he said, and then these two guys came out from the front. They had robes on. They took off their robes. They waded into the massive pile of garbage. And they stood in the middle of it. And they said, Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And one reached in and pulled out a bottle of wine, the other reached in and pulled out a loaf of bread, thankfully wrapped in plastic. And they said, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I want you to imagine for a moment what it was like for Jesus to leave the beauty and the glory and the perfection of heaven and to walk into the stench and the filth and the wickedness of earth. And such was the passion that compelled him to want to be incarnate, to be God with us in the middle of our sin and our filth and our wretchedness, that he would choose that, that he would choose to leave the comfort of heaven to be in the filth of earth for us. I hadn't really ever thought about it before like that. But to be honest with you, in a lot of ways, when we choose to be God's people and we choose to represent his character to a broken and dying world around us, that requires us to walk into some pretty revolting places. The places that make our skin crawl. It's never comfortable. It's not very often pleasant. It usually has a metaphorical stench in our nostrils. And yet that's what it is to represent God's character. And that's who he has called us to be. So I wonder if even right now if you would stand where you are and I would love to pray for us. And if you want to talk about um, kids and foster care and joining with Joe and Pete as they embark on this journey of engaging with some kids, emergency kids and, and foster kids in this location, then I'd love for you to come and chat to us in the foyer afterwards. But at the moment, I just want to pray for us as God's people. So let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, I thank you so much for your heart for us. Sometimes it can become so easy for us just to get used to it or to somehow feel in some strange way that, we, that we've earned it or that we're good enough. But we have these occasional moments where we remember and we're reminded by your spirit that We are not worthy, and we are not good enough, and we have been made holy simply because you chose to come and to wipe our sins away, because you chose to come and to make us holy, that everything that is good and everything that is right about us is only there because it has come from you and has come from your grace. And that is such a profound and wonderful truth, God. Because it spurs us to action. And so, Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here today. And I want to ask in the name of Jesus that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict. That you would give each of us a way forward that you would give each of us a vision and a heart and a step to take that will cause us to become even more integral and closer, stepping closer to what it is that you would have for us as we strive to be your people, as we strive to be people who represent you to the broken world around us. Well, we live in a a culture and a society that doesn't think much of your people. And there's reasons for that. And there's also a a lot of stuff that's said that's not fair. But we recognize that you are God and you are in control and you see it all and you know the answer and you know the outcome. And our goal and our desire and our heart is to live lives that are obedient to you so that you can change the hearts of people. And so we stand here, Lord God, today with open hearts and open hands before you. And our answer to you today, Lord, is yes. You speak and we say yes. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the courage to be obedient. And we thank you for what you're doing in the matchless, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.